Have you ever committed to something, found yourself in a situation um, where you, you kind of stepped out, you did something, you thought it would be exciting, you thought it would be uh, fun, but then you had immediate regrets because you suddenly realized that you were way outside of your comfort zone? Anyone? Has anyone ever been there? Okay, I, I've never been skydiving, but I would imagine that skydiving would be this kind of thing, right? You would sign up thinking it was going to be a blast, thinking you were going to have an adventure. But my guess would be that a lot of people, when they're up in the plane getting, to, getting ready to jump out with their parachute strapped on, I would guess that a lot of people are starting to second-guess their decision. Maybe for some of you, maybe it's, it's roller coasters, Okay, I used to genuinely believe that every person secretly loved roller coasters. It was just a matter of getting over their fear. Okay, for a long time, this is what I believed. But then one day, I was strapped into the Leviathan, which is a really big roller coaster at Canada's Wonderland, and the person beside me, who I won't mention any name, started to have a panic attack. Okay, so we all have these different things that we sign up thinking that it's going to be a blast, but then sometimes we, we start to backtrack. We realize we've gone too far outside of our comfort zone. And I had a, an experience like this just, just a few short years ago um, after I graduated from high school. Okay, so after I graduated from high school, I'm glad that not, not a lot of you laughed because it makes me feel like you think I'm young. <laughs> Thank you. So after I graduated from high school, I did a discipleship program, and uh, I spent a few months in Guatemala. Okay, so there was about 30 students that I went uh, to Guatemala with, and while we were there, we had all kinds of really cool opportunities. We did service projects, we did um, some studies, there were learning opportunities, but we also had the opportunity to go on some pretty exciting adventures, And one thing that we were given the opportunity to do while we were in Guatemala was mountain bike down the side of a volcano. That's pretty cool, right? Like, if you're 19, that's the things that you want to be able to tell your friends you did when you came back from Guatemala. So when we heard about this opportunity, I knew that I would have to sign up for it. Okay, but there was only one little glitch to my plan. And the glitch was that when they gave us the opportunity, they did say that you had to have some mountain biking experience in order to participate. I didn't have any mountain biking experience. But I had been going to the gym a lot, (laughs) kind of leading up to this trip. And my second favorite cardio machine at the gym was the stationary bike. And, you know, when I was on the stationary bike, a lot of the time I would increase and I would decrease the resistance, and I would go faster, and then I would go slower. And I figured that this, in a lot of ways, would probably simulate the experience of mountain biking. And so I figured that this was qualification enough to go on this mountain biking trip. Okay, and a lot of, not a lot, there's probably a few girls that I was friends with, and we all decided, they were in the same position, we all decided that this was qualification enough. So we signed up, and we headed out for this mountain biking trek, okay, down the side of a volcano called Agua in Guatemala. So they loaded us all up onto this pickup truck, and they drive you up as far as you can get on the truck up the side of this volcano, and they dropped us off there. 
okay? And it took me about 20 seconds to realize that riding a stationary bike was actually significantly different than mountain biking down the side of a volcano. Because as I stood at the top and I looked down, it was pretty steep. It was really steep. Okay, the trail was very narrow. I didn't even know how to keep my tire on a trail this narrow. Okay, they were windy. It was, it was scary. So I figured I'd made a big mistake. But the truth is, it was too late. Okay, the truck was gone. I wasn't getting down anyway, except for down this volcano on this mountain bike. And so this group of guys came along with us. They started flying down the hill. Obviously, they'd had some experience mountain biking. <laughs> the tour guides started flying down the hill. And me and my friends were just at the top, just clutching our brakes and dragging our feet on the ground, literally, because we didn't want to fly down the hill and probably die, okay? And I just have this image of the, the tour guide in my mind just looking back at us like we were morons and saying, put your feet on the pedals. And I looked at her and I was like, no. No way, right? I, I didn't realize the risk that was going to be involved in this situation. And I was in over my head. I had done just fine on a stationary bike right? because stationary bikes are safe. Right? On the stationary bike, I was in control. But when I was on a real bike, on a real volcano, and the, the hill was real steep, I didn't feel very in control. There was risk involved. Right? It was very scary. And this experience has been coming to mind a lot for me, and probably partially because it's summer and I've been doing a lot of bike riding but also not down volcanoes or even on mountains, just trails. But I've been doing a lot of biking, and I've also been thinking about what it means to live a life of faith. As Catherine was talking about, we're heading into a new season, right? And as, as we head into a new season, new ministry season, this is a question that we think through as leadership. What does it look like to actually do this? If we're going to do this as a church, what does it look like for us to live lives of faith? And I think that if we're honest, a lot of us spend a lot of our lives living our faith like we're riding a stationary bike. We go to church, maybe we pray, right? We read the Bible, we do the Christian-y things that we know we're supposed to do. But there really isn't any risk involved. Right? It's all very safe. It's all very predictable. And if we're honest... It's really kind of boring. It's not really all that inspiring or life-changing. But Jesus calls us to a way of living that's totally different. He calls us to a whole other way of living at our faith. Jesus is calling us to live a faith where we're all in. He's calling us to live a faith where we're listening to the Spirit, where we're willing to take risks, where we're fully engaged He's kind of like that tour guide who's looking at, up at us and yelling, put your feet on the pedals. And this morning, uh, we're looking at a passage about some people who are living out their faith in this active, all-in, engaged kind of way. 
This morning, we're going to be looking at a passage from the Gospel of Mark. So just a little bit of background. Mark is uh, the shortest of the four Gospels. Mark, uh, it's a book that's filled with action, okay? Mark doesn't waste any words. He doesn't give us a lot of fluff. In the book of Mark, uh, Jesus is constantly going from one place to another, proclaiming the gospel, healing people. He's always involved in ministry of some sort. It's very exciting. It's like Mark knew that 2,000 years later we would be Twitter people and we wouldn't be able to handle much in our attention spans, right? It's it's a a book that's full of action. So we're going to be reading from Mark 2, verses 1 to 12, so you're welcome to turn with me there. Now, if you have your Bible, um, at this point in the gospel, uh, just to give you a little bit of background, Jesus has been baptized. Um, He's called some of his disciples. He has been going around Galilee, teaching, proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's cast out demons. He's been performing healings. And this is only chapter one, folks, right? There's a lot of action. So he's been doing all of these things. And needless to say, he's been drawing a lot of attention. Actually, Mark tells us that Jesus was attracting so much attention that he couldn't even go into the towns because he would just be swarmed with people. And in our passage today, this popularity continues. But we also start to see a little bit of pushback uh, from the religious leaders uh, about what Jesus is doing here. So let's read Mark 2, verses 1 to 12. I'm going to be reading from the NLT. When Jesus returned from Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived, carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of the religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, What's he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking, and so he asked them, Why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I'll prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and he said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. So, Jesus has been out and about doing ministry throughout Galilee, and he makes his way back to Capernaum. This was kind of his home base at this time. Okay, and Jesus has already done a significant amount of ministry in Capernaum. The people in this community knew who Jesus was. Right? They knew about his teaching, they knew about his miracles, and so when he made his way back to Capernaum and people started to hear about this, it didn't take long for the word to spread. People knew that he was back in town. Word got around really fast. 
So as Jesus is preaching in this house, we don't know exactly whose house it is, but a lot of scholars think this might have been Peter's house that he's teaching in. When he's preaching in this house, it doesn't take a lot of time before it is packed out. Okay, this is like Costco on a Saturday, kind of busy. People are shoulder to shoulder. People are crowding out kind of through the doorway, and they're crowding on the front lawn just to hear Jesus preaching about the kingdom of God. And then we hear about these five men. One of the, of the men was paralyzed. We don't know how long he was paralyzed for. We don't know what caused him to be paralyzed. All we know about this guy is that he's paralyzed and that he's got four amazing friends. And so these guys hear that Jesus is back in town and they think, this is our one shot. This is our one shot to get our friend healed. And so they carried their friend to this house where they knew that Jesus was, and it didn't go exactly as they planned, right? Do you guys know that feeling? You might catch that I have a little bit of experience with this. Do you know that feeling when you really need a coffee, and you're on your way to Tim Hortons, you're going to go probably to the Sobeys Plaza, just to pick a random Tim Hortons, you're going to grab a coffee and you're going down Highway 3 and everything is looking great. You're full of hope. You're full of anticipation about this coffee. But then you turn onto Parker and you see that the drive through is about 1,000 people long, right? There's about 1,000 people who are also desperately waiting for their coffee and you have to make a decision, Okay, about whether you are going to sacrifice that warm, caffeinated beverage or whether you're going to sacrifice three hours and possibly your job to wait in line to, for it to be ready until all of these people get through and you can get your coffee. You know that feeling? That feeling of disappointment? Okay, imagine that, but times about like a million. And that's what these guys would have been experiencing when they showed up at this house. They couldn't get through. They couldn't get to Jesus. But here's the thing, okay, when you know that Jesus is the only hope that you've got, when you know that Jesus is the only one who can heal you, and you face an obstacle on your way to Jesus, you don't turn around and go home. You find another way to get to Jesus. And so that's what these guys do. So the the homes in Capernaum at this time were one-story homes, and uh, they had flat roofs. The roofs were made of uh, wood that was laid across and then uh, is cross-hatched. I don't know what that means. I just read that, so I think some of you probably do. (laughs) Yeah, so it was cross-hatched with smaller sticks, and then it was covered in thatch, and then it was covered in mud, okay? And they used these roofs kind of like we use decks today. So they would go up on the roof sometimes if they needed uh, to get some fresh air, if they were going to uh, have a meal. Sometimes they would go up there and they would let their laundry uh, dry, Uh, And there was a staircase that would go around the back of these homes. And so it was was easy to access the roof that way. So that's what these guys do. They they go around back, they find the staircase, and they climb up onto the roof of this house. And then they start digging it up. 
They literally start digging up this roof to get to Jesus. The Greek text literally translates this way, okay? It says they unroofed the roof. Isn't that great? I love that word. They unroofed the roof. We had a drain-clogged pipe over here a couple weeks ago. It it unroofed our roof, right? So they dig up the roof and just, just picture this, okay? So as Jesus is standing there in this house teaching, it would have become increasingly apparent that something's going on up on this roof. Okay, there would have been scratching. There would have been banging. It would have been getting louder and louder, right? And then eventually dirt would have started to fall on Jesus' head, probably on all these people. Sticks would have started to fall. And then suddenly there would be like light that would be cast through and this hole would open up. You can just imagine when that last piece of roof was unroofed. And everyone would have just been standing there, looking up, just waiting, right? just waiting to see was about what was about to happen. And so this man is lowered down before Jesus. Think about this, okay? If I was Jesus in this situation, let me tell you what I would have been seeing. Vandalism. I would have been seeing vandalism, okay? This was not a small amount of damage that was done to this house. Somebody was going to have to cover this bill. And let me tell you what else I would have been seeing. Poor social skills. Okay, there was a whole crowd of people there listening to Jesus. I'm sure there were a lot of people there who had ailments, who had hurts, that could have used healing, right? But these guys just thought they could butt to the front of the line. I would have seen poor social skills. But Jesus looks at this man, and he doesn't see the vandalism. He doesn't see poor social skills. What does he see? He sees faith. He sees the faith of this man and the faith of his friends. The passage says he saw their faith. Right? And then Jesus looks at this man with compassion and he says, My child, your sins are forgiven. So it might sound a little bit strange for us to use this term, my child, but in this culture, this was a term of an endearment. It was a, uh, an affectionate term, and it was also a term that uh, teachers or leaders would use to speak about their pupils. So he looks at this man with compassion, and he says, my child, your sins are forgiven. Now, we know we're good Christians, right? We know we should be like, oh, thank Jesus. Thank God his sins are forgiven. But let's just be honest about this man's circumstances at this time. What a disappointment! Right? What a disappointment! He's lying. This paralyzed man is lying there, expecting to be healed. And Jesus says, Your sins are forgiven. Who here has been to an arcade? You ever been to an arcade? Probably, probably most of you at some point have been to an arcade. Arcades are terrible places. Arcades exist to teach children about shattered hearts and disappointment. (laughs) Because if you've ever been at an arcade, you probably know, you probably had this same experience, right? Where you go in, your eye is on the Jeep, right? Your eye is on that toy Jeep that's hanging from the ceiling. And so you put in all kinds of coins, all kinds of uh, probably 
your education fund. Thousands of dollars from your education fund could go into these arcade games before you finally hit the jackpot and then one moment it happens, right? You pull the lever, you push the button, whatever it might be, and the sirens start going off and the lights start lighting up and the machine just starts pumping out tickets and you're like, yes, right? Yes, the Jeep, it's mine. And then you collect all of your tickets and you take them into the counter to cash them in. And what happens? Yeah, the teenage boy running the counter says, this is what you have to choose from. And then you get like a miniature eraser and a Jolly Rancher. (laughs) Go for the Jolly Rancher every time, okay? It's great that this this guy's having his sins forgiven, right? That's positive. But let's be honest. When these guys finally got their friend down into this house, they weren't thinking that they were going to have to lift him out. (laughs) They didn't bring their friend to Jesus to have his sins forgiven. They brought their friend to Jesus so that he could be healed. They wanted their friend to walk again. And the passage doesn't tell us anything about how these guys reacted in this moment. Okay, I would imagine, though, that they were confused. And I would imagine that their hearts sunk a little bit. I would imagine that they were disappointed. Because as human beings, we all have this same tendency. As human beings, we all have this tendency to get confused about what it is that we need the most. We get really confused about what our deepest needs are. We spend so much time worrying about our finances, worrying about our health, our relationship, our success, all of these external kinds of things. If I was to do a survey of this room or out in our community and I was to ask what the most important things are in your life, what matters most to you, these are probably the kinds of things we would talk about. But when Jesus looks at this man, he sees things differently. Okay, he sees a deeper need than the one that's most obvious. He sees the need for forgiveness. And if you've been here over the summer, you know that we just wrapped up a series where we went through the book of Philippians. And throughout Philippians, one of uh, Paul's main themes is this idea of joy in Christ that, goes, that, that lasts throughout all different circumstances. It's, it's this joy that's so deeply rooted in Christ that the world can't shake it. So Paul says that he has learned to have joy, whether he has a lot or whether he has nothing. He's learned to have joy whether he's gathered around a dinner table celebrating with his friends or whether he's sitting alone in a prison cell because his joy was found in Christ. This man's physical need was real. He didn't come to Jesus looking to be made rich or famous. He didn't want to be a celebrity. He just wanted to walk. But when Jesus looked at him, he saw an even deeper need. Our deepest need, our truest need is for reconciliation with the God who made us. Okay, that's true for every person in this room. All of our hope and wholeness and 
full life, eternal life, they're all rooted in the need that Jesus is meeting for this man. They're all rooted in forgiveness from God. And so whether this man realizes it or not, even though he went in there looking for for physical healing, Jesus offered him something so much better before he even paid any attention to that. He offered him forgiveness. And now, at this point uh, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus hasn't really faced any opposition from the religious leaders, okay? Jesus is really just getting things started. But here at this point in the Gospel of Mark, the religious leaders are in the room, and they start to get their backs up. And this is going to be a recurring situation in Mark's Gospel. The conflict with the religious leaders only escalates from this point forward, And the religious leaders, they don't say anything out loud. They just start to think it. Okay, but they start to think, who is this guy? Who does this guy think he is? Who does he think he is to forgive sins? He can't forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. This is blasphemy. The Jewish religion had a really clear structure in place about what people needed to do in order to get forgiveness. Okay, there were rules and rituals that kind of dictated this. There was uh, things that had to be done that took effort, right? Things that took energy, things that actually were costly. They had to buy sacrifices, right? And Jesus here is offering this man forgiveness without saying that he has to go through any of those systems, right? He completely disregards the religious systems of this day, He disregards the structures that were in place that these religious leaders would have valued so much. And they have a problem with that. And so Jesus knows what they're thinking because he's Jesus. He knows what they're thinking. And so he asks them a question. He says, which is easier? For me to tell this guy his sins are forgiven or for me to tell him to pick up his mat and to walk? Now, it's not as easy of a question as it sounds, is it? So these guys are probably left there scratching their heads a little bit, thinking this one through. So I'm going to save you the trouble, okay? Here's the bottom line. Jesus didn't ask what was easier to do. He didn't ask what the easier thing was to do. He asked what the easier thing was to say. And it was easier for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven because nobody would have been able to prove whether the forgiveness had actually taken place or not. If Jesus said that this guy was healed and then he didn't jump up off his mat and walk out the door, everyone would have known that he was a fake. Right? If uh, If I tell Doug, is Doug even in here? Oh, thank goodness. Okay, if I tell Doug that I forgive him, For that time two years ago when he pocket dialed me at 5.30 in the morning and woke me up from a deep sleep in a panic, there's no way for Doug to know whether I've actually forgiven him or not. He might doubt it if I keep bringing... (laughs) We'll talk later, Doug. (laughs) Make an appointment. Okay, but if I, 
I love you, Doug. <laughs> but if I tell Doug, if I tell Doug that I have healed him, okay, of his baldness, <laughs> which I would never do, because we lo- like it, he looks so great bald. But if I did, if I said, Doug, you're healed of your baldness, and he doesn't walk out of here with this luscious head of hair, okay, you guys are going to know that I didn't actually heal him. So Jesus demonstrates that he has the authority to forgive sins by demonstrating that he has the authority to heal. Right? He, he, he uses this really significant term in this passage too, in verse 10. Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. And the son of man, it's actually Jesus' favorite title for himself. It's the title that he uses most often when he speaks about himself. And it obviously has this sense of his humanity, right? Son of man. It's talking about humanity, but it also has another sense as well. Because the book of Daniel talks about the son of man as somebody who would be coming in glory. Somebody who would come with authority. Somebody who would be worshipped by every person in, in the world. Okay, so Jesus here is also speaking about his divinity, This is a term that brings together these ideas of Jesus' humanity and his divinity, and it really speaks to his role in the world. So Jesus looks at the paralyzed man, and he says, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumps up, he grabs his mat, and he heads out the door. Not only was he healed of his paralysis, he could walk again, But he walked out of there with a whole new identity as somebody who had been forgiven and reconciled to God. And nobody could believe what they'd seen, the text tells us, right? They're all celebrating, they're shocked, they're amazed, and they worship God. This morning, I want you to think about this question. Where do you find yourself in this story? Which person, which people in this story do you find that you identify with the most? Not everybody that we read about in this passage is on board with what Jesus is doing here. Okay, most obviously, the religious leaders. It's easy for us uh, to read this story 2,000 years later and to be critical of these religious leaders. Their heart seems so hard. They're obsessed with the rules. They're prideful. But the truth is, to give these guys a break, all they were really doing was their best to be faithful to the law, to be faithful to God in the only way that they knew how. Okay, they spent their lives studying the law, teaching people the law. Right? They, this is what they had given so much time to. This is what mattered to them the most. The problem was that they were so focused on their rules and their systems and their structures that they couldn't see this new thing that God was doing right before them in Jesus Christ. And the truth is that sometimes we do this exact same thing. 
We can get so focused on how we think things should be. We can get so focused on how we've always done it or on what needs to change. We can get so focused on who's in and who's out and who's right and who's wrong. And we can go to church week after week and we can know all of the right things to say and we can do all of the things that we're supposed to do, but we can never enter into a relationship with Jesus. It's easy for us to miss this because we can get so caught up in these external structures, right? This kind of religion feels safe, right? We, We like it in some ways. We like religion because it feels like we're in control, right? We love control, but the truth is that it's not the real thing. This is like stationary bike Christianity, not the real thing. And there's another group of people in this story who are missing out on what, peop- what Jesus is doing as well. And this is easy for us to miss. Right? It's easy for us to read this story and not even catch it. But this is super important because I think that probably the majority of people in the Western church today are living out their Christian lives here. Okay? And it's the crowd. It's the crowd. There's a whole bunch of people packed into this house listening to Jesus. They're overflowing on onto the front lawn. And most of these people, most of the people present don't have a problem with Jesus. Actually, they think that Jesus is pretty cool. He does some amazing things. He does some cool teachings, right? They like Jesus. And sometimes, often, we think about crowds as a measure of success, right? When church attendance is good, we're happy, But being in the crowd in the Gospel of Mark is different. Mark talks about crowds a lot. He's actually intending to make this point, right? It matters. Being in the crowd isn't a positive thing in the Gospel of Mark because the crowds are ambivalent. They stand back, right? And they watch what Jesus is doing from a distance. But there's no commitment. There's no commitment. They never step in. They never actually experience what Jesus is doing. Mark, actually, most often what they're doing in the Gospel of Mark is blocking people from getting to Jesus. If you pay attention, the pattern throughout the Gospel is that the crowds block people who need to get to Jesus from actually getting there. Mark makes it really obvious that being in proximity to Jesus isn't the same thing as being a disciple. And sometimes we come to church in the exact same way that we go to the movies. And we talked about this a little bit this morning. Right? We sit in the rows and we take it all in. And then we go out for lunch and we talk about the things that we liked, the things that we didn't like. How was the worship? How was the sermon? What did we agree with? What didn't we agree with? Right? We spectate. We critique but we never enter into the life of faith and engagement that Jesus actually invites us into. Throughout the New Testament, faith always goes hand in hand with action. It always involves action. And this faith that leads to action is exactly what we see in this group of five men that we read about in our passage this morning. We don't know anything about what the paralyzed man or what his friends believed. We don't know their theology, right? But their faith was obvious because it it led them to action, 
They took a risk, right? They were willing to overcome obstacles in order to get to Jesus. And if you're sitting here this morning and your faith has been kind of feeling tired, or you're feeling like you haven't really been experiencing God's presence, maybe you found your way into the crowd. Maybe you've been standing in the crowd. And the invitation this morning is to shift your posture. Okay, it's to step into action, to put your feet on the pedals, to put it into the words of my uh, volcano tour guide, right? Maybe this morning you're here and you find yourself in a position where the person you can relate most closely to in this story is the paralyzed man. Maybe you're here this morning and you have some kind of need. Maybe there's an area in your life where you feel stuck or where you feel that you need healing. When things go off course for us, we often spend so much time worrying and trying to control the situation by our own strength and our own willpower. But the invitation today is to lay the situation down before Jesus. Can you imagine how much easier our lives would be if we trusted God? If we trusted that God is going to provide And if he doesn't provide, he's going to change our hearts so that we can experience that joy and contentment in all circumstances. The truth is that the kingdom of God came into the world through Jesus, right? But we live in this in-between time, in this already not yet time, because it's not yet here in its fullness. And so we still live with the impacts and the brokenness of sin, And when it comes to our physical needs, sometimes God heals now and sometimes God heals later, right? And that can be difficult. If you have questions about that, talk to Pastor Jeff. (laughs) Right? Sometimes, (laughs) sorry, sometimes the miracle, sometimes the miracle is to get up and to walk, right? Right now. Right? But sometimes the miracle is having this peace that surpasses all understanding and having this hope for the future that no one else can understand because we're experiencing God's presence. Right? Our immediate needs always point us to our deepest need. And our deepest need is for forgiveness. And, the, and God always provides for our deepest need regardless of who you are, regardless of what you've done or how you came into this church this morning, what kind of where you were at, this is true for you. Okay, God offers forgiveness. He, he provides for our deepest needs every time, every time. There wasn't much that this um, paralyzed man could have done for himself in this story. There, there wasn't wasn't much that he could have done for himself, but he did have to take a risk. He did have to do something that would have felt risky. Okay, he had to be seen. He had to let himself be seen. He had to receive help from his friends when they offered it. Okay, and he had to trust that Jesus was good enough and compassionate enough to heal him instead of yelling at him for breaking the roof. Right? Or maybe you're here this morning and you're all in. 
Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe you're sitting here and you've experienced God's forgiveness. You know the grace that that Jesus is speaking about here. And you've experienced hope and wholeness. and, And you're living this relationship with God. If that's you, for the rest of your life, you are called to tear up roofs. Okay, you could make that your job title. Roof unroofer. Unroofer of roofs. Okay, you're called to tear up roofs. Not here. We just got ours fixed. (laughs) But we're called to do what it takes to bring people to Jesus. Okay, we're called to live out the good news and to invite other people to experience it as well. The man who was paralyzed didn't stand a chance at getting to Jesus without the help of his friends. And this is the way that God designed us. Okay, we need each other. We're made for community. And these guys didn't leave their friend behind when their lives got too busy. They didn't think about him as a burden. Right? They saw him, they saw his need, and they picked him up, and they did what they had to do to get him to Jesus. As a church family, we're going through a season of change. Right? A lot of you know that we're preparing to shift to two services in October. And to be completely honest with you, this is a change that's going to take a lot of work for a lot of people. This is, going to, this is a change that's going to cause some discomfort, right, for the leadership and for everyone. Right? This is a change that's a little bit inconvenient. But you know why we're doing it? We're not doing it so that we can cram more bodies into this building. We're doing it because as a church, we believe that the gospel is good news, right? And we need to do whatever it takes to make sure that there's space for people to come and to hear about Jesus. Our whole purpose as a church is to make it possible for people to come to Christ and to grow in Christ. And if we need to tear up roofs in order to make that happen, or if we need to set our alarm clocks a little bit earlier, or put in some extra time, get a little bit uncomfortable, we'll do that because we'll do what it takes. We'll do what it takes to get people to Jesus. Here's the bottom line, okay? A life of faith is a life of action. So what's been getting in the way? What's been getting in the way of you taking the next active step in your faith? If it's a busy schedule, quit something. If it's sin that you can't shake, tell somebody, get help. You don't have to do it on your own. If it's fear, drown it out with the love of God. 1 John 4 verse 18 says there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Get a tattoo if you need to, to remember that. (laughs) Whatever it is that you need to, to, to do, whatever it is that's been getting in the way, get rid of it. Tear up the roof, okay? Because Jesus has something that's so much better for us. Catherine uh, was talking about this earlier. September, it's it's not technically the beginning of a new year, but in a lot of ways it feels like a brand new beginning, doesn't it? New seasons bring new opportunities. And maybe God is calling you to engage in your faith in a new way this season. 
Maybe for you, maybe that means leading a life group, making space for people to experience transformation in community. Maybe it means joining a life group and making some new connections here in our church family. Maybe it means serving somewhere in, in, our, in our kids' ministries or in our welcome ministries. Or maybe it has nothing to do with Evergreen. Maybe God's calling you out into the community somewhere. Maybe he's calling you to sell your house or change your career or foster children. I don't know. There's so many, so many ways that this can show up, and it looks different for all of us. But what's true for all of us is this. A life of faith is a life of engagement. It's a life of action. Sometimes God calls us out of our comfort zone. Sometimes he calls us to take risks, to put our feet on the pedals. And whatever that looks like, we can trust him enough to step out and do it because he's good and because his grace never ends and because the Holy Spirit is with us, leading us and empowering us every step of the way. So here's the big idea for this morning. A life of faith is a life of action. When we trust God, we're free to take risks, overcome obstacles, and live a life of engagement as we're led and empowered by the Holy Spirit.